In the darkness we were waiting Without hope, without light Till from heaven you came running There was mercy in your eyes To fulfill the law and prophets To a virgin came the word From a throne of endless glory To a cradle in the dirt
laugh at me where you stand go ahead and say it isn't me the day will come when you shall see cause I'll rise again there's no Sunday was amazing because it provided that hope for a future that we can have. So Lord, this morning as we praise your name and we lift your name up, thank you for that gift of your one and only son and the hope that he provides this Easter Sunday morning. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Hey, stand with us this morning as we open in worship. My Redeemer lives. Sing along with us this morning. 
amen, amen, and amen. Good morning, Sunset Hills. It's so good to see you here on this Easter morning. I declare unto you that Christ is risen today. Amen. Thank you so much for being here on this beautiful morning. We appreciate so much you coming out and, and just serving a risen Savior. If today's your first day to be here at Sunset Hills, we, we just would really, we hope you've already felt a warm welcome by coming into this place on the way in. We would love for you to let us know who you are. You can text hi, a real simple way, to that phone number that's up there on the screen right now, and that ask you to fill out a few questions and just a few, and that gives us some information. Or you can stop by the Welcome Center out there if you haven't already done so, and we've just got a few little things for you to fill out and let us know who you are. We just want you to know that you're welcome here to be a part of this community anytime. And for you guys that have been around for a long time, I'm glad you're here also. It's good to see you, all right? If there are children still in our worship service who would like to go to Children's Church, uh, there's plenty of room for your kids to go down there. They're welcome to stay here, but they can also go into the two children's churches that are going on. The preschool and the toddlers are here in this building, and the elementary ages are down in the white building. If you don't know where that is, just ask some of the folks outside, and they will show you, be happy to show you, and help you take your children to children's church. Isn't it good to be here this morning? Yeah. Let's continue worshiping.
Savior, He can move the mountains. My God is mighty to save. He is mighty to save forever. Author of salvation, He rose and conquered the grave. Jesus conquered the grave. Down from glory to 
Jesus Christ, my living hope. Hallelujah, praise the one who set me free. Hallelujah, death has lost its grip on me. You have broken every chain. There's salvation in your name, Jesus Christ.
that God, you can move those mountains in our lives. And God, I believe you want to move those mountains this morning. God, that may be through healing. God, that may be through some financial struggles. God, through um, a broken marriage, God. Whatever is going on in the life of those people that have their hands raised, that raise their hands, Lord. I just pray that, God, you would exercise our faith. Lord, let us put our faith in you and, and test you, Lord, this morning. Because, God, that's what we just sang about. God, you are the only hope. God, you've called us to lay our burdens down at the foot of the cross. And God, Jesus paid for all of those things that we are indebted to that we can't pay for. But God, we're so thankful this morning that we celebrate that although he died a horrible death, Lord, was buried in a borrowed tomb that God on the third day on that Sunday morning that he didn't stay there that he rose again God you promised that he's coming back for us but God until then I just pray that we would live our very best life for you so God if there's a mountain in our way God I just pray this morning that you would just take these ordinary moments and God do something extraordinary in our lives God, I just love you today, and we just thank you for this opportunity that we have to lift up the high and mighty name of Jesus. It's in his perfect and holy name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated today. On many Sunday mornings when I get up and stand before you, Often we'll start with asking a question. Sometimes it's kind of a, a prompt to whether or not uh, you uh, just give me some feedback on things. Oftentimes I say, don't raise your hand. Uh, sometimes when I ask a question, I already know the answer to uh, the question that, that I ask for many of you. And that's one of those situations I'm about to ask now, one of those questions where I probably already know the answer because if you've been living for any amount of time at a very long, you're probably going to have experienced this. So here's the question. Have you ever had just a really strange week, you know? And, and let me explain what I'm talking about. It's a week where events and interactions happen to you that you just weren't expecting or planned for. What I'm talking about is like a week where it started out really, really, really good. You experienced a great deal of success, and that brought a great deal of happiness with it. But by the end of the week, the tables had turned, and over a seven-day stretch of time, your life was in turmoil. You experienced a great disappointment and incredible grief. And like I know, like I said earlier, I know most of us have probably experienced something like this. In fact, it probably was not even a week's worth of time, seven days. It may have started out in the morning. It was wonderful, and by the end of the day, it was hard. When those times happen, you can't help but experience the full gamut of emotions from over-the-top the exuberance of joy to the lowest life-altering depth of sorrow. 
if you have, if you've experienced that kind of week, or even that kind of day, then you probably have a pretty good idea of what the followers of Jesus had experienced leading up to the Passover. The week had started out so promising as, as Jesus enters into the city to the fanfare with a celebration and parade into Jerusalem. The palm branches, they were, they were waving over the streets and being laid down and people were shouting, Hosanna! And Jesus, well, he was a center of attention as he rode through the streets. Really, what they did is gave him a hero's welcome. And while the crowd was cheering Jesus, the hero, hero of the day began to weep. Weeping for the beloved city of Jerusalem that he so adored. Weeping for the people that lived there, the very ones that would later turn on him. Weeping for what he knew what was coming. And weeping that he knew his ministry would be coming to an end soon. This week was found with emotional highs and lows with other events that have been happening all through each of the days leading up to what would happen on Friday. But let's back up to Thursday night for a moment. You remember he was arrested at midnight. He was illegally tried and falsely accused and charged of blasphemy. He was denied by his very own disciples, betrayed by one of them, falsely accused by his very own nation, lied about in testimony, tried illegally at night, abandoned by the same people that he cried over, he wept over just a week before as they sang Hosanna to the highest. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. All of those had abandoned him. And those same people would soon be crucify him. He is sentenced to death in order to be crucified. And he hangs on the cross for hours in unimaginable agony and dies for the sins of the world. And for those who place their trust in him. And while he hung on the cross, he said one of the most amazing things that he could have ever said when he was eked out the words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He had been beaten and tortured and flogged, whipped, torn, came about just as near to death as possible, discouraging by the Romans. And then while he hung on the cross in utter agony, he was mocked and ridiculed and scorned by just about everyone. And he dies around 3 p.m. Later, he'd be taken down from the cross and placed in that borrowed tomb. The crucifixion of Jesus seemed to be like thousands of others that had happened and had been performed by the Romans both uh, before Jesus and after Jesus hung on the cross. And just like all the other crucifixions that had been done in the past, this one too had produced exactly what it was meant to produce, a dead man. Jesus, no exception, was dead. 
And everyone who had witnessed the man hanging on the cross, they knew that he had died. And Friday was a day of pain, suffering, agony, utter disappointment to his followers and defeat. Hope that they once thought possible was now vanished. Can you imagine? Oh, the disappointment. Oh, the loss of dream. The sadness of losing such a friend. Friday, no doubt, was dismal. And Saturday, some have said it was silent. But now, it's Sunday. Would you pray with me, please? It is Sunday, Lord. It is Sunday. After a horrible Friday. I pray that we will hear from you today through the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. May all that we do, all that we have done, and all that we will do from here on out be focused on not a dead Jesus, but on a risen Savior. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you are, know anything about the Bible at all, you know that all four Gospels give an account of what happened that week. Each week, each one of those different uh, authors of the Gospels, they have different pieces of the story. It's really depending on what and who they want to focus on. And while they have some different details of what takes place surrounding the story, the authors of the Gospels, they're representing their own unique experience, their perspective. And the four of them together tell the entire account of the resurrection. So we pick up in John's account in chapter 20, where it says, Early on the Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene, came to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. Here you have this close friend of Jesus. She had been devastated by his death. And this is a Mary who uh, is described by Luke as being a, a woman who is a, a woman in the city who was a sinner. And she had followed Jesus for, for uh, much of his ministry because he had done something to her that no one else could do in casting seven demons out of her. She's grateful. It's the same Mary who was an uninvited guest at the home of Simon, and she, she bends down and breaks open the alabaster uh, ointment, and, and she f washes the feet of Jesus not with just water that would be available, but with her tears. She's so honored to be serving him. And she takes the tears and wipes his feet and dries them with her hair. 
John tells us that Mary had made her way to the tomb. It was still dark when she came. She and Salome had, according to Mark, had been discussing how they could give Jesus a proper burial. Chances are she didn't know that the men had already dressed him. So they go to give him what they wanted to, felt like was, was the best they could do for their friend. But there was a problem. They talked about how they would be unable to move the heavy stone that sealed the entrance and wondered who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb. But once she got there, she discovered the stone had already been rolled back from the entrance. And she's horrified by what she sees. So upset, she doesn't even stick around. She turns and starts running away. Who knows what she's thinking? But I'm pretty sure I can put myself in her place for just a moment, and, and, and it would be a natural thing for us to try to figure out what happened. Let's see if we can discover what's taking place here. As she's running, we know from experience that that's what we would be doing when something horrible comes up. How did this happen? How do we get in this shape? And Ligety split, she makes tracks to go find help. And verse 2 says, She ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. Now, let me stop here just for a second. Because I want you to notice something here. She's starting to rationale what's happened to the, the missing body of Jesus. She's trying to figure it out. And she, when she gets there, she said, they have taken the Lord's body out of the tomb, and I don't know where they've put him. And she's really saying is he's gone. And I can't figure out where he's at. So she tells Peter and John, makes sense that someone's taken the body. He's not there anymore. Someone must have broken in and, and taken his body. It's clear right now that she was not expecting a resurrection. She was expecting to find what we would think would be there, a dead body. And she believes that, that someone has taken it. I mean, that seems sensible, doesn't it? Rational. Here's this, this body that she knew for a fact that Jesus had died and they had been that he had been placed in the tomb, this body that had no life, that's the one that, that housed her dead friend. So a dead body was entombed there uh, uh, just a couple of days earlier. It should be there now. Why isn't it? So it's a reasonable assumption, although it's a false assumption, that someone had taken it. And when she got there, it's not what she expected. So at some point, she begins to, she gets to where she draws that conclusion. She doesn't know who. It's just somebody has taken his body. It's likely that Peter and John, they were alarmed by what Mary had told them. We kind of can figure that out based on the urgency and the immediacy of their response. And here's verse 3. It says, 
Peter and the other disciples started out for the tomb. And they were both running. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Now, remember this is John's gospel. And don't you love the way that he describes their journey to the tomb? John got there first. History for 2,000 years, he would have it recorded that John is faster, he has a faster speed than what Peter does because he's, he wants to make it known. It seems the highlights, that it highlights his competitive nature of this young fella. Now, I know a few guys like that are very competitive, even today's time. They're still living, it seems, in the glory days of their youth. I was always faster than someone else. I could probably tell you a deacon who still lives in that. I won't mention his name, Bobby Hamilton. Did that slip out? Very competitive. John does this, and as he gets there first, Scripture says he stooped and looked in and saw the linen wrappings lying there. But he didn't go in. He says that he, he peeks in and he, he, he sees that the linen cloth was just lying there. The King James Version states that John stooped into the tomb, looked inside and saw the linen cloth, but he did not go in. Then the next verse, Simon Peter arrived and went inside. Here you've got John who's, who's waiting outside, and here's P Peter showing his boldness. He can't wait. He gets there, or finally out of breath, and he goes inside. He also noticed the linen wrappings lying there, while the cloth that had covered Jesus' head was folded up, lying apart from the other wrappings. He also sees that tomb. He looks in, he sees where the body had lain. Now, I just want to bring out a few little details here because this is what John does. He's very exact in what he's saying. There are two sort of pieces or cloth. There's more than that, but there, there's two like piles of cloth that exist. It's the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' body and around his head, and the one that had been around his head, it was all gently pulled off and, and, and folded up. The other wrapping, it's laying there separately. I want you to get this picture in your mind that I, that I found. I think it kind of gives a, a more um, in-depth description of how John and Peter saw this linen there. So put yourself in the story and think about what it might have felt like to be Mary and John and Peter. No one expecting the resurrection, not Mary, not Peter, not John. So they're back into trying to figure out this plausible explanation of the missing body of Jesus. And back up just a minute to um, where Mary came running to these guys. 
Once again, she believes that the body has been stolen. But who could do this? Now, I suspect that maybe the three of them, uh, as, as she was thinking through it, and as Peter and John were running towards the tomb, they were trying to figure this out. If it's in fact that Mary is tr telling the, the truth that someone's taken the body, who would it have been? Could it have been maybe some random person who got a group together and, and thought it would be cool to steal the body of this famous man? I mean, that sounds kind of reasonable, doesn't it? So they overpowered the guards. Now we're getting into it's not so good, sort of in the weeds. They moved the big heavy stone, and they took his body away. It wouldn't be so surprising for maybe a group of teenager boys to be tempted to do such shenanigans. Seems silly, but maybe. Or perhaps it was the religious leaders who started thinking that Jesus, about Jesus predicting his resurrection, and maybe his followers, followers would try to tick, trick everyone into believing it. So what we better do is go and get the body. That sounds a little more plausible than the other story. Or maybe it was just grave robbers. There were certainly those kind of people around then who were looking for valuables worth something that might be buried inside the linen cloth. Maybe they're the ones who've taken the body of Jesus. And by nature, they would be trying to solve this mystery of the missing body. Human nature is human nature then as it is now. When we can't explain something, we start trying to figure it out to discover what could be the answer. We come up with, try to come up with explanations. And I expect that Peter and John and certainly Mary must have been frantically trying to work all this out in their minds. But when Peter and John got to the tomb, they found evidence that would say that no one actually stole the body. He's missing. But there's still evidence there that, well, no one could have taken the body. Let's just kind of explore that for just a minute. First, it would have taken more than one person to move the heavy stone. So one person couldn't take the body by themselves. Secondly, they would have had to overpower the Roman guards. And, and what person or persons would challenge these formidable soldiers? And then thirdly, remember the burial cloths that I talked about a moment ago? They were neatly folded in place. The, the cloth around the head was folded. Now, if you're a robber, you think they would take the time to fold the cloths? Have you ever had someone break into your home? Raise your hands if you have. What did it look like after the robbers came? Did they leave it in the condition that it was found in? Or was everything just ransacked, sacked, whatever the word is? Was it a mess? I know when they broke into our house, they weren't concerned about everything, leaving everything nice and neat. I mean, think about it for a second. 
If there's a group of, of, of robbers there, uh, can you imagine the leader telling his accomplices, hey guys, let's be sure and fold the cloth up before we go. We don't want to get the reputation of being untidy grave robbers, do we? No, what they would have been is in a hurry, and they would have never taken time to fold up the cloth that was around Jesus' head. And what about the strips of cloth that would have been wrapped around the body of Jesus? I heard it explained this way by a commentator. He said, in the Greek, it refers to the strips of linen still in their folds. What I mean by that, they had taken the strips of linen and they would have saturated them with perfumed ointment and they would and spices and they would they would start wrapping it around the body. There'd be several different strips of linen that they would do layer after layer. They would put these strips, and by the end time they got to the end of it, the person's body would look something like a mummy. When they found these body strips of linen. They were still in their folds. In other words, they were still in the shape of a body. The only problem was is, 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 is if some ha- miraculously, which is what happened, that, that the body was just kind of pulled or evaporated out of those folds. And so what was left was those, those, those strips of linen in the shape of the body of Jesus. Now, If robbers were breaking in, they would have just ripped the claws, the strips off and just strewn them into the floor. They would have taken the time to put it back in the shape of Jesus' body. So as they're looking in, Peter and John... It's not making sense that someone had stowed the body. The detail at which John remembers it and records the way they found it lends credibility to an exit of the body in a systematic and careful form. And so he states this in verse 8. Then a disciple who had reached the tomb first, there he is again, bragging on himself, also went in and he saw... And believed. In verse 8, you might think that he's starting to get the picture that maybe Jesus has actually resurrected, but not yet. He, he's writing this after some 60 years, and he's recounting the story. And then he says in verse 9, for until, they, for until then, they still hadn't understood the scriptures that Jesus must rise from the dead. So he's not there yet. And here's something that sort of punctuates that, by what their response was after they discover all of this. It says, the Bible says, they, then they went home. Now that's a head scratcher, isn't it? They just go home after this incredible, remarkable, empty tomb experience. Uh, hey, he's not here. Look at all of that. It's pretty amazing, and hey, let's go home. That doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense, does it? 
They had run to the tomb initially with all of their energy. And they find it, like Mary had said, he's not here. And they go in and they investigate and discover the order of the linen strips and then they go home. But Mary, she must have stayed behind at the tomb. For John records that Mary was standing outside the tomb crying. Let that sink in just for a second. She's still upset. And as she wept, she stooped and looked in. And she saw two white-robed angels, one sitting at the head and the other at the foot of the place where the body of Jesus had been lying. Dear woman, why are you crying? The angel asked her. Because they have taken away my Lord, she replied, and I don't know where they have put him. Now, again, just kind of put yourself in this moment. There's no big fanfare written about of the fact that she's talking with angels. It's just a conversation that she's having with these two angels, one that's sitting at the head where, where, Jesus, or at the, uh, where Jesus' head was, had been laying and, and, and another one sitting at the feet. She doesn't seem to realize it. She's upset. I don't know where he is. Verse 14 says she turned to leave and saw someone standing there. It was Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. Dear woman, look at this, what it says. Jesus asked her, who are you looking for? She thought, this man's talking to me. He must be the gardener. Sir, she said, if you've taken him away, tell me where you put him, and I will go and get him. Just kind of picture that for a second. Have you ever tried to pick up somebody who's very limp? You know, let me just say it the way it is. Like a dead body. Here's Mary said. If you just tell me where he is, I'll go and get him. I, you know, maybe I'll get some friends together. I just kind of think that's a little funny. It's like, I'll go get him. But get the setting. You know, she, she's so heartbroken, so distraught, that she doesn't even recognize the man that asked her why she was crying, and she mistakes him for the gardener. Even ask him... If you're the one who took the body or moved it, please tell me so I can go and get him. Yet she's still not expecting that there had been a resurrection. But then Jesus, all he does, he says one word to her, and after this discussion, he called her by name, Mary, Jesus said, and she turned to him and cried out, Rabboni, which is Hebrew for teacher. 
When he called her name, she now recognizes that it was Jesus. And she goes and she grabs him. She's hanging on to him for dear life. And all of a sudden, it becomes very clear that Jesus did come back to life. He had risen just like he said he would. And she's hanging on to him. Mary goes from this incredible great sadness to wonderful joy. And soon, more than 500 people would see and testify that Jesus is in fact risen, just as he said he would. There is no other event in history that equals the resurrection. And there is no greater expression of God showing his love for mankind than the coming, the crucifixion, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. It is the supreme and ultimate demonstration of God's loving kindness to his creation. This resurrection. For us who are believers, it is the cornerstone of our belief. It is the cornerstone of Christianity. Why? The birth of Christ is miraculous and imaginable and, and, and magical, and we make much ado about it, and we should. But the resurrection, it is the main event. You see, the, the resurrection, it validates that Jesus is who he said he was and who he says he is. I mean, really stop and think about it. Who else but God could come back to life after death? And the sum total of all the promises that God has made to mankind, it's validated in the resurrection. What are some of those promises? that were made possible because Jesus is risen? Well, first, uh, let me just give you five. There are so many more, but let's just focus on five. The first one is, my sins can be forgiven. You understand the power of that? The release of that. Everything that I've ever done wrong that is a sin can be forgiven because of what Jesus did on the cross and dying for your sins and mine God gives forgives us freely completely instantly and repeatedly redemption was made possible through Jesus. That's what Jesus meant when he said, it is finished. God was satisfied. Satisfied. The sin debt was paid. Jesus died, but what made the difference in the death of Jesus from all the other deaths of crucifixion was the fact that there was a resurrection. Because Christ conquered death. He conquered sin. And because of that, we can conquer death and be raised with him into eternity. The Bible says in the book of Ephesians chapter 1, for the blood of Christ, we, for by the blood of Christ we are set free. That is, our, our sins, listen to this, our sins are forgiven. How great is the grace of God which he gave 
to us in such large measure. And then in Romans 3.22, we are made right in God's sight when we trust in Jesus to take away our sins. And we all can be saved in the same way no matter who we are or what we have done. Isn't that an amazing thing? And that all deserves an amen. It's so cool that all of us can be made right with God. When we trust in Jesus, it covers me. I started to say some of you are a lot worse than me, but I mean, I'm pretty bad. But whatever you've done, it covers you. It covers your sin. And there is nothing that you can do to ever make God stop loving you. You can try, but you're going to fail. You see, God's love isn't based on who you are. His love is based on who He is. It's not based on what you do. His love is based on what He's done. Who is God? The Bible says God is, tell me, love. The only reason that you're able to love and be loved is because God loved you first. The most famous in the verse, the Bible in the verse, the most famous verse in the Bible says it. For God so, what? Loved. You say, well, I'm loved because I work for it. Where'd you get the ability to know what love even was, is, to work towards being loved it's because God loved you and here's an amazing thing God doesn't wait for you for us to love him first he sent Jesus to explain how he loves so the first promise is that we're loved by God here's the second promise it's a promise of a purpose. I don't have to go through life once I become a Christ follower. I don't have to go through life wondering what I'm supposed to do. Because as I really do life with him, I discover that I have a purpose. Not my purpose to carry out, but God's purpose. God's purpose for my life is the only true purpose once I discover it. And when you discover what your true purpose is, let me just tell you, it's a sweet place to be. A lot of folks never get to the point of discovery. They sort of just drift through life, bouncing from one thing to the next, and life controls them rather than God controlling them, rather than God's purpose controlling them. If you want to know what your true purpose is, there's only one place that you're going to learn it and discover it, and that's when you believe in Jesus Christ. You ask him to save you, and you follow him. You talk with him, and you get to know him. And you can only do this when you spend time with him. Only the one who knows you better than yourself can reveal to you what your true purpose is. 
Let me just go on and say, you will not ever discover what your true purpose is in life until you believe in Jesus Christ. The Bible says this in Colossians 1.16. Everything got started in Christ. Let me back up and use that word again. Everything finds its purpose in Jesus Christ. Many people today are searching for meaning and purpose because they've failed to line up their life with Christ. They failed to discover their true worth and value because they're looking for their purpose in the wrong places. God wants you to discover this. He knows exactly who you are. He knows what your talents are and your abilities are. And here's what the Bible says. It's in Christ that we find out who we are. That's our identity. And what we're living for. And that's our purpose. Long before we first heard of Christ and got our hopes up, he had his eye on us, had designs for us for glorious living, part of the overall purpose he is working out in everything and everybody. So one of the great promises of God happens when we discover his purpose for our life. Here's the third one, and this is incredible, really. It's the promise of the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not talking about some ooh kind of spooky sort of sensation when we receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus said the night before he goes to the cross that he brings his inner circle together and he says, hey guys, <clears throat> I'm going to let them arrest me. I'm going to let them kill me on the cross. And three days later, I'm going to come back to life and they don't believe it. Then I'm going to come go back to heaven after about 40 days, but I'm going to give you something that will help you in life. I'm going to give you someone. The Father is going to send my spirit to be with you and to be in you. So later after the resurrection, during the 40-day period, when he's hanging around uh, after coming back to life, he tells him, don't you dare try to do anything unless you, until I send the Holy Spirit. Because my spirit is going to empower you to do incredible things that I want you to do. Here's how he said it in Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses telling people about, about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That same Power, that same spirit, the Holy Spirit that was given to those people of the early church, it's given to you and me. Well, let me describe that power, though, the Holy Spirit. The power that is available to us that we have access to is the same power that resurrected Jesus. He says it in Ephesians 1, 19 and 20, 
I also pray that you would understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. That's an amazing promise that we've got access. The Holy Spirit's living in us. And here's another promise. And this is really amazing. It's the promise of eternal life. Our resurrection, one day we will resurrect, is secured by the power of God, the power of Christ that was demonstrated in his resurrection. That's pretty amazing. Jesus bringing himself back to life changed everything. Because he lives, we live. I don't have to fear death anymore. Jesus proved that there is life after death. If you have a loved one who has died as a believer in Christ, you can have the comfort, confident hope and assurance that he or she is in heaven. How can we know that? Through the resurrection, Jesus proved that there is life beyond death. Jesus told Mary, in John chapter 11, 25 through 26, I am the one who raises the dead and gives them life again. Anyone who believes in me, even though he dies like anyone else, shall live again. Given eternal life for believing in me and shall never perish. You know, really, when you stop and think about it, if Jesus Christ had not risen from the dead, what we would be doing today is a joke. It wouldn't be any truth in what we do. We'd have no hope. We just think, and I know there's people who believe this. When you're dead, you're dead, and that's it. It's over. But Jesus said, because I give eternal life to those who believe in me, there is hope for a future, eternity. That week ended on Friday being so dreadful, so devastating. But that turned into the greatest act of love that has ever been demonstrated when Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday morning. Sunday morning's resurrection made promises of God real for you and for me. My sins are forgiven. I'm loved by God. My life has purpose. I have the Holy Spirit. And I'm looking forward to eternal life. Thank God 
Friday was not the end of the story of Jesus. Sunday's resurrection. His resurrection. Why did it happen? Why would he go to all of this trouble? He did it to demonstrate one thing. That he loves us and wants to have a relationship with us. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads, please. These quiet moments of just a time of reflection. Maybe you're here today and you have that relationship with Jesus. At some point in time, you repented of your sins and you believe that Jesus came to die and forgive you for it. Through your act of, for, of giving your life and believing in Jesus, you made that relationship right with God. If you've done that right now, I just want you to say a prayer of thanksgiving to God for Him saving you. Just quietly in your mind, say, God, I thank you for saving my life. I thank you that my sins are forgiven. I thank you that you love me. And you gave purpose, meaning to my life. Father, I thank you that I know without a doubt that the Holy Spirit walks with me and guides me and helps me and provides comfort in times when it's hard. When, you're facing a, when I'm facing a mountain, as what Kelly prayed earlier, that I don't have to walk up that mountain by myself. I have your spirit within me. I thank you that he walks with me. Father, I thank you that when this life is over, that death would be no more than a passageway of walking into your presence. And I'll be able to see the face of Jesus. And I can say to him, thank you for giving his life for me. Sincerely, I hope you've been praying that prayer if you have. Thank God that you have a relationship with him. Maybe you're here and you don't have that relationship. Life is harder. You haven't found purpose. Maybe you don't feel loved. If you don't have the relationship, I can guarantee you, you do not have the Holy Spirit. And the Bible also declares that when this life is over, you will not See, death as a passageway to enter into heaven, you will, in fact, go to a place called hell that is cut off from anything and everything that is good, cut off from God. 
if that is you today. And I want you to pray a prayer also. In your mind, say these words after me. Father, I am a sinner. I have made mistakes and I've disobeyed you throughout my life. I confess my failures and I ask you to forgive me. I cannot repay you for the debt that I owe. I cannot be good enough on my own to earn heaven. I believe in Jesus. I believe he died for my sins. I believe that he was buried and three days later was raised again to life. And I believe through the sacrifice of your son Jesus and through him alone, my sins can be forgiven. I ask you right now to forgive me and grant me eternal life in you. I stand before you today to say if you were a person that did not have a right relationship with God and you prayed that prayer today, today, this very day, this very Easter Sunday, you are saved. You say, it can't be that easy. Well, it wasn't easy for Jesus. Certainly wasn't easy for his heavenly Father. But all we have to do is believe and ask and receive. And if you did that, you, you have all of these promises fulfilled in your life. In a moment as we will stand and as we'll sing. I know what I'm about to ask you is going to take a lot of courage. But if you prayed that prayer, I, I, I want you to just come and, and share it with me. Not that I can do anything except pray with you to say thank you. Come to where I am in the altar here. Maybe you're here for some other reason. You just need to come spend some time in this altar to pray. Then you're welcome as we stand and as we sing together.
is the name above all other names. He is the only one who can grant us and open up the promises that you have for us, God. It's my sincere prayer that each person, as we leave here today, that we will have that assurance of knowing the name of Jesus. Only Jesus. And if we don't, Father, pray you just worry that person to death until they fall before you and ask for forgiveness. In Jesus' name, the church prays. Amen. Maybe see there, please. Amen. So glad to see you this morning. Have you worshiped with us? I just want to bring uh, just one thing to your attention. If you're here this morning and uh, you would um, be in some need of prayer, we have a prayer group that meets on Wednesday mornings and Wednesday evenings. And we would be honored to lift your need up uh, to the Lord. And uh, obviously you can do that yourself. But God says when two or more gather in my name that I'll be there. And so I believe that there's power in prayer when we lift people up. Um, on this back table right back here, there is, um, there's some sheets there. And you can leave an anonymous prayer request if you'd like, or you can leave a prayer request that we would be honored to add um, to our prayer list, our church prayer list, and our whole prayer team will be praying for you. Um, and there's a slide here. Um, also, you can text the word pray, or you can text the word prayer. Either one works um, to our church number. And um, the same number that you text hi to, you can text the word pray or prayer, and it'll lead you through um, a dialogue so that you can leave some prayer requests there as well. So. It sort of throws you off when the slide is not there. It does a little bit. But. You have been a recipient of that prayer over the last couple of I have, and I've, I felt those prayers. And yeah. I appreciate that. I didn't know you owned a suit. <laughs> you look pretty good. Got to be buried in something, don't you? <laughs> I think it's time to go home after that. <laughs> Thank you for being here this morning, for worshiping us on this Easter Sunday. You're always welcome to come be a part of what we do here. Uh, I was reminded by a deacon, this is not coming from me, all right? Uh, in a Baptist church, we he, uh, had the deacon come up and says, are we taking up an offering today? And I said, we haven't been taking up offerings in a long time. But if you do feel so compelled that you want to make a, an offering to the Lord, to his church here, there are offering boxes on each side of the door back there, just on the right side over there and the left side over there, or on your right side or on your left, whichever you're seated, all right? And we appreciate all the giving that God gives to us, okay? Should I have done that on Easter Sunday? Yeah, right. It's part of worship. What? It's a part of worship. Yeah, and you'll get paid this week because of it. And so will I. <laughs> it works that way. Would you please stand? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for today. God, thank you for your amazing message of victory, God, today. Lord, as we go out and about into the hedges and the high highways, Lord, that you've called us to 
our mission field. God, I just pray that we'd be a reflection of your love and, and light and goodness and everything that we do. Uh, Lord, let us share your, your love and kindness with those that you put us in the path of. It's in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have a great week, everybody. Hi, good morning. This is Kelly. I want to take a moment to personally thank you for joining us for today's live stream. I hope today's message was encouraging and inspiring for you. You know what? We would love to hear from you. If you're here today and you made a decision for Christ, or maybe you just have a simple prayer request, we would love to know about that. You can text the word prayer to 615-776-1807. One of our pastors will be back in touch with you. Hey, if you're in the neighborhood, we'd love to see you in person. You can join us for life groups at 9 a.m. or blended worship at 10 a.m. And let me say this, from your youngest family member to your family member that has the most years of life experience, we have a place for you. You know, I believe that we're living in unprecedented times. People all around us are looking for sources of hope. And you and I, we both know where that hope is found. We have a God who loves us and he wants to meet us right where we are. But you know what? He loves us too much to keep us there. So come and join us, whether online or in person. We would love to shake your hand, give you a smile, and do life with you here at Sunset Hills. Have a great week, everybody.